He's become a regular on this program, and we're damn glad to have him. Stephen J. Harper has been doing some fine political work that we have been talking about, I guess, for a couple of years now. He's also the author of an intriguing book titled Crossing Hoffa, A Teamster's Story. Uh, we mentioned last time he was on that I was going to get the book and read it, and I have, uh, I've made good on that. I enjoyed it very much, and I'm keen to talk with him about it. So welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. Well, thank you, Doug. We should explain that this book is about your father's interaction with a famous man, J- Jimmy Hoffa, probably the, the leading labor leader in the country back in the 1960s. I think, or certainly the most famous, I would say, in the 1960s. Your dad got tangled up with him in a, I think, very odd way. Let's talk a little about your dad, who is himself has a story to tell. Let me give your, your listeners the, the elevator version so they can have some context <laughs> for what we're talking about. Right. Um, Essentially, my dad was uh, 30 years old, had four kids and uh, a wife and something to prove. He got into a tangle with uh, Jimmy Hoffa because the leader of his local was corrupt. He was skimming union dues, which outraged my father. And my dad launched an insurgency that was so successful that Hoffa actually came to town, met alone with my father in a downtown Minneapolis hotel for three hours, told my father to stop the insurgency. My father refused, and they spent the next two years trying to kill him. He survived and was able to put his life back together after being blackballed. So the story for me, after my dad died, I came across a number of the things that he kept uh, in, a, in a small treasure box, he used to call it. And among them were his union card and various other sort of memorabilia, if you will, from his union days. It was, a, it was a chapter in my family that was always referred to as Dad's union fight. So what happened ultimately was what started out for me as a just a sort of a personal family history. I tried to, I was I was really after two things. Uh, I knew the out the broad outlines of the story because my dad had talked about it, and I had read a little bit about it, and I actually rem- had some recollection of various little vignettes, sort of the way things stick in your mind when you're a little kid, right? Uh, little scenes, and I wanted to put all that together and actually understand what that was about. And once I once I did that, I was trying to figure out really two things: what was motivating my father to do what he continued to do, which, as I got deeper into it, seemed well, crazy in a way, right? In the risks he was taking and so forth, but that I also wanted to understand why in the world, you know, as you described him, certainly the most infamous labor leader of the last half of the 20th century, why he would care about my father's little local in in Minneapolis. So what I did was I wound up, you know, sort of as a historian, if you will, trying to sort of starting from each of their respective beginnings and and then tracing their lives through to the moment of their their intersection and ultimate confrontation and clash, and then the story plays out actually far more dramatically than I would have thought, and there are all sorts of really strange twists and turns along the way that they would have stunned my father if he'd been alive to to learn about them. So that's sort of the broad strokes. Well, well well summarized, very well summarized. I don't want to give away the the entire plot because then no no one will buy the book. The way you evolved the story from a personal a matter of your dad and thing you knew little little vignettes about to something that he really was not aware of by by, the, by your historical digging you discover oh there was a lot more going on here that, than he had any idea. Two things are probably the most dramatic, or at least they were to me. Number one, the whole Hoffa backstory as it related to the town where my father was was creating all this fuss 
Minneapolis was the site of controversies and, and sort of dealings, underhanded dealings, if you will, that my father knew nothing about, totally unrelated to what he was doing, but they were they were related ultimately to the kinds of things that 10 years later would send Hoffa to, to prison for a long time. The related piece that was that was really surprising. This was this this was a jaw dropper for me. Was when I realized that the fellow who was the the columnist, a regular reporter, I should say, for the Minneapolis Star Tribune, was the fellow who my father and my mother both had thought, well, this is great. You know, we've got this guy on our side, <laughs> and my dad was constantly feeding him information about what was going on. And my father had no idea up to the moment of his death, no idea that that reporter was actually a Hoffa, I don't want to say mole because that's too strong, but he was simultaneously writing a book and pandering to Hoffa, interviewing Hoffa, you know, access journalism at, at, at its height, <laughs> you know, at least that's what we would call it now. And he was feeding Hoffa all this inside information. As I read back now on the, on the, on the articles that that reporter wrote for his newspaper, I now see that what he was really doing was actually actually telegraphing to Hoffa what my father's next moves were likely to be. Yeah. And then beyond that, he was also sort of spinning events as they occurred, including the, the momentous meeting between my dad and Hoffa in the downtown Minneapolis hotel, where this reporter was present. And he wound up spinning a version of that, uh, of that meeting that bore very little resemblance to what had actually gone on. And I know that only because my dad kept voluminous contemporaneous notes of all of this stuff as it was happening. And he even did, with respect to the corrupt guy that he was going after who, who ran the local, um, you know, wore a, wore a wire back in the days when uh, they were these sort of big, bulky things. They weren't like they are now. At great personal risk, I mean, in retrospect, you think, holy smokes, this guy has four kids and a wife and he's doing this? What in the world? Right. But there's a backstory there, too, that I was not fully aware of. The book is Crossing Hoffa, a Teamster story, and we're speaking with author Stephen J. Harper. Let's talk about your dad's history, which let's say he had he had a bit of a checkered past before he became your, your pa. Did time in Angola prison, one of the toughest prisons in the United States down in Louisiana, because he had a habit of passing some bad checks, got him in some deep hot water. Yeah, well, what happened was he had, at a very young age, 20, at 21, he, he had a marriage that failed. Um, it was a personal disaster for him, you know, psychologically. Uh, he went into a terrible depression, wound up hitchhiking all over the country, picking up such anecdotes as the time that he had drinks with Jimmy Durante at the Brown Derby and <laughs> in Hollywood, you know, that, that sort of stuff. But he wound up in, in uh, Louisiana, where he in New Orleans, where he, in order to sort of get from one day to the next, was involved in various schemes that were illegal, including passing bad checks. And he wound up uh, spending more than a year in what was called at that time by various articles that were written about it, America's worst prison, uh, Angola in Louisiana. Uh, and, and, I, and, and the book includes photographs of, of the place that are actually contemporaneous with exactly the time that my dad was there. That was the other sort of remarkable thing to me as I dug deeply into this piece. I knew my dad had been in prison. He, he was very honest about that. He said, I got into trouble. One of his favorite things to say was, look, if you're going to make mistakes, don't make mine. Be original. Make your own mistakes. 
he was never bashful about it. But what I had no idea, what I had no idea was, because he was protecting all of us. I, I'm the oldest of, of four kids. Uh, he was protecting all of us from the unbelievably horrendous experience that that prison must have been for him. You paint a vivid picture in, in, in the book about just how bad this place was. It sounds pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, and, and the photos help. And as I say, when I went through and sort of dug in deeper, I, I was able to actually find photographs from the, from the very time that my dad was there. You know, the, the prison that's there now is, is a different facility. Where my dad was doesn't exist anymore, but, but I found photographs both of the in, interior and exterior uh, of that place. It was a hellhole. The title of articles about your, your facility is, aren't things like America's Worst Prison, <laughs> unless you've really, really earned it. And that place, they earned it. But what he came out of there with, and this really goes to the question of, you know, why would he do what he was doing? Because he came out of there in, uh, in 1952, and you know, here he is, you know, six or seven years later after marrying the person who became my mother, you know, winds up in this fight with a remarkable figure of the 20th century, not believing for a moment that Hoffa himself is corrupt. He doesn't, he didn't think that, but you know, he's 30 years old, but he's got something to prove. You know, he's on a, he's on a mission for redemption. It strikes me that, that you outlined very clearly that your dad never lost faith in Jimmy Hoffa as a great labor leader. He thought the things he was doing in Minnesota once brought to Hoffa's attention would result in, you know, remediation. It would, would all get better because Hoffa's heart was in the right place. And, and boy, that wasn't the case. Well, not only did he think they'd get better, he thought, my dad, that is, thought that he'd actually be rewarded with a, a, a plush job with the International Union. There's a spot of ambition behind all of this as well. Now, he thought he'd be a hero. He thought Hoffa would view him as a hero. Boy, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time to get even close to an outcome like that. Just to illustrate how wrong, uh, you have a very dramatic moment where he's pushing the case, and, and he's sort of, they're trying to give him some messages that you need to just lay off here, and that included having an emissary come out to take your parents out to dinner and not identifying his name, but just assuring them he was a good friend of Jimmy Hoffa's. And by all accounts, he sounds like, you know, a mobster. Right, from Detroit. And they're sitting through the dinner, one of the nicest restaurants in the city. And one of the peculiar things that my mother noticed right away was that the table was set up so that there weren't any tables nearby. And this fellow was sitting with his back to the wall. And as the dinner progresses, you know, they're talking about it, and, and this fellow is basically saying, Hoffa doesn't like commotion, there's been a lot of commotion here, and, you know, you should really, you know, really let, let Mr. Hoffa take care of this from this point on, you've done enough. They were ships passing in the night. My mother actually raised the thing. She said, well, what is it exactly that you do for Mr. Hoffa? <laughs> she was as naive as, you know, I can't even begin to tell you. In fact, she's so naive that when she saw a draft of the manuscript before it was published, she read this particular scene and said, hmm, boy, now that I read it, that was pretty frightening. You just shake your head. But he opened up his, his suit coat to, to show that one of the things he does for Mr. Hoffa is that, you know, he's, a, he's an enforcer. He, keeps, he carries his equalizer with him everywhere he goes. And he showed her, there, there it is, you know, there's his gun holstered underneath his jacket. But they were, they were ships passing in the night because my dad came away from that session thinking, Hoffa's with me. I'm doing Hoffa's work. All right. Just like that guy explained. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about about Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, he became a national figure in the 1950s. There was congressional investigations, which were being televised. 
And Hoffa was among the people who was brought before the cameras and before the nation to talk about what he was up to. Bobby Kennedy, working for the committee, just absolutely had it in for Hoffa. Yep. The two were mortal enemies. Right. I look back on it and wonder, from your book, your, your dad's viewpoint was that, you know, they're going to try and squash the labor movement. And, you know, powerful forces are allied against it. Hoffa's standing up for us, the little guy. And... From the 21st century perspective, I just wonder about to what degree was all this ammunition brought to bear on Hoffa? I mean, was it was it because he was really that bad, or was it because he was really going to be a powerful force they didn't want to reckon with? The other thing, you can you see this throughout the book in different tonalities, too. To what extent do these things become just, as you say, kind of emotional blood feuds between Bobby Kennedy and Hoffa? There was bad blood doesn't even really capture the the essence of the, the hatred that you can you can see that they developed for each other. And at what point does it morph into just sort of, that, you know, single-minded, myopic vendetta kind of stuff? On the other hand, Bobby Kennedy had a point, right? Because there was corruption in the union. There was bad stuff happening, bad stuff going on. At least historically, you would say the Kennedys, along with the Democratic Party, would have been supporters of the labor movement generally. Right. Hoffa realized that he was going to be able, you know, by the 1960 uh, convention, he realized that he was going to get farther with a Republican in the White House than he ever got would get with, with a Kennedy in the White House. That was the first time that the Teamsters had ever supported a, a Republican for president, Richard Nixon. Which was news back in the day. The fact that Teamsters were going to support Nixon and did so when he ran again was, was news. Big news, yep. And you can see as I play through the the sequence of events that, that are going on behind the scenes there, you can see that, you know, both Nixon and Hoffa are, are doing a little sort of quid pro quo, quo kind of stuff there in terms of scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, up to and including, uh, I might add, what ultimately became Hoffa's pardon right. that Nixon gave him when he finally was president. Our guest is author Stephen J. Harper, and we are discussing his excellent book, Crossing Hoffa, A Teamster's Story. Let, let's talk about, about that, because uh, I, I remember this so well. It was, you know, it, was, it was in the news every day that Jimmy Hoffa was surprisingly pardoned by President Nixon, and there was immediately a big kerfuffle over the fact that um, the provision of him getting out was that he wouldn't have anything to do with the union for a decade. And he said later, oh, I, I didn't know that was part of the deal. You know what? I believe him. There are a lot of different possibilities there. But I think one possibility that, to me, the most likely is that the person that Jimmy put in charge of the union to run it while he was in prison was Frank Fitzsimmons, who, ironically enough, was also one of the three people who was involved in the the panel that heard my, my father's charges right. against the corrupt local guy. Uh, my father, by the way, said about Fitzsimmons, that he wouldn't make a pimple on, on Jimmy Hoffa's you-know-what <laughs> in terms of what he thought of the guy. Right. Just had no use for him at all. And my own personal speculation or belief based upon all of the things that I have learned and discovered and researched and putting some context into all of this, seems pretty clear that by the time Hoffa was wanting to return to run the union, there were organized criminal elements that were able to play Fitzsimmons pretty easily. And I think there may well have been concern that they might have a more difficult time playing Hoffa in terms of, you know, getting what they wanted. So that wouldn't surprise me at all 
if the, that restriction in the pardon that barred Hoffa from returning to run the union for, I guess, it was a decade, which he was challenging in court, by the way, wouldn't surprise me if, at all if uh, Frank Fitzsimmons behind that. I think Hoffa thought Fitzsimmons was behind it because I think he thought, and I think correctly, that if Hoffa were to try to take on Fitzsimmons to get his old job back as president of the union, Hoffa was, would win that one in a landslide. Sort of makes sense. The other sort of interesting historical footnote when I really, when I got deeply into this was to discover that the White House lawyers that worked on that pardon apparently were Charles Colson and John Dean. They became famous not too long after that for different reasons. <laughs> yes, they did. I guess by Hoffa finally succumbing to, to the charges brought against him and going away, can we look at it as that's what sort of saved your dad ultimately? No, I think that by the time Hoffa was on trial even, the chapter relating to my dad was over. Okay. My dad had been put on ice in terms of the job opportunities. He wasn't getting offers to, to drive in order to make a living to support his family. And uh, ultimately, as, this, as the book depicts, in order to get employment, he, he had to leave town. So we wound up heading south. The story we were just supposed to tell people was that we were heading for, the, for, for Arizona because of my dad's allergies. He ran out of money in, in Oklahoma where my mother's half-sisters lived. And uh, so we stayed with them for a while and then rented a house. And after about a year, we, we returned to Minneapolis. And by then, anybody at the Teamsters, you know, had lost interest in, and wouldn't have bothered with my father at that point. By the way, I, I think my favorite quote of the book is when you finally did make it back to, uh, to, to Minnesota and people asked you about, well, what's the deal with all the moving? And your response was, well, it's harder to hit a moving target. And, and you weren't kidding. No, I was not kidding. I went to 12 different schools through 12th grade. You, you do what you have to do. One of the interesting things for me as I, I look back on all of it is, and none of us really appreciated at the, at the time how much we allow what we want to believe about something to shape our perceptions of what's happening around us. Right. Psychologists call it you know, different things, selective perception, uh, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning. And boy, that plays out really, really clearly as I go through my family's experience as it relates to all this stuff. But there was no sense of that. They had no sense of that at the time. And your mom, even even for decades later. We never thought about it. Never thought about it. You know, well, that's just whatever. Somebody else looking at it would say, holy smokes. The line I sometimes use, and I think it's, I think it's actually true, that sometimes the line that, that separates courage from stupidity gets blurry. My dad's <laughs> crusade is, is a kind of a personal first-hand illustration of that. Your dad was a tough guy having gone, survived the prison experience that he had, but he took to checking his truck very carefully when there was evidence that, you know, someone had taken lug nuts off. That did not save him when he spent one night in Wisconsin and went to drive home and discovered that uh, someone had cut his brakes. It's a hell of a story. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing story. And and it's true that that's even the more amazing part of it. There weren't interstate highways back then. It, well, they were just on just getting built, but there was no interstate highway, you know, between uh, you know Minneapolis and the route that my dad run ran, which was the middle of Wisconsin. Um, and in particular, the route that he took uh, was down the the old Minnesota, the old River Road, um, and uh, it was it was not nearly as as well well lit or as as well paved or anything else it was a really really rough road um and 
it was on that road, which has a lot of ups and downs for the Midwest. You don't think about the Midwest as being anything but flat, but the river road is a is a notable exception to that. Um, but he was he was barreling along and you know getting ready to to slow down and there, uh, down the down to the floor the brakes went and the truck kept going. There's a sort of an irony too to the whole river road thing because if you take the river roads along the Mississippi River and if you were to, if you were to take a boat or a barge all the way down uh, the Mississippi River you would wind up at the Angola Prison and ultimately the Gulf of Mexico. So it's it was sort of like the other end of the line, if you will. But he had a yeah he had a near death experience for sure in that truck. I was just had the hair on the back of my neck up, but just reading the part about it, I realized he's got no brakes, and he's trying to think, all right, how am I going to survive this? And he's realizing if I can get to the point where there's that truck ramp, uh, that runaway truck ramp, if I can get to that thing and I can drive off on it, then I'm, I'm going to come out of it. He was fortunate. He had a very colorful, interesting, uh, and experienced mentor, you know, training him to drive an over-the-road rig. His name was Marvin Masteller, and when I went and, and talked to Masteller, in the in the course of writing the book, I realized that, in fact, he was not seven feet tall as I had remembered him as a child. <laughs> he was about he was about five six. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's the kind of person he was. Big cigars, just a booming voice, and you know he, he walked into the room and and you knew he was there. Sounds like he also gave you a warning when you were writing the book that you better damn well do it right. Yeah, right. That's right. Get a writer. I'll take care of you myself. <laughs> He did assure me, by the way, that I had, after he read the book, he, he assured me that I had gotten it right. And then he gave me a whole treasure trove of documents that my father had given him. They were copies of the same material that he kept for himself. Oh. He, yeah, he said, I don't have any, I don't need this stuff anymore. Why don't you take it? So I did. I think someone should, should make a little short film about this. I'm game. When the book first came out, there was some interest in a, in a movie. There's a movie in this book. Well, I'm glad you think so. I always thought it would be sort of interesting, not just at the level of history and not just at the level of Hoffa, kind of a, a Hitchcock sort of theme in the sense of an ordinary man thrown into extraordinary circumstances, although not just once, but repeatedly. And yet the audience knows more than, in this case, what the man himself, the protagonist, realizes is going on around him. That's right. Perhaps we have a filmmaker uh, listening to this uh, interview who will step up and uh, do what needs to be done. I'd be happy to hear from you. We've been speaking with Stephen J. Harper about his excellent book, Crossing Hoffa, A Teamster Story. We can't recommend it highly enough and, and suggest, dear listener, that uh, you may want to just read it for yourself. And to do that, well, you, you know what to do. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Doug. That about does it for Radio Parallax, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We will talk to you again soon, as in a week from now. See you then. And